Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. When people with behavioral issues act disruptively in a medical facility, the personnel have to deal not only with the crisis at hand, but somehow continue to deal with others who still require their care. Dr. James Loveless, an assistant professor of psychology, is co-author of a study examining a different way to approach these situations. It was published earlier this year in the Journal of Clinical Psychology in Medical Settings. Another way for healthcare professionals to serve patients and perhaps ease their own burdens after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. An MTSU alum will take degrees in two languages beyond the confines of campus with a generous financial stipend. The Honor Society of Phi Kappa Phi, the nation's oldest and most selective collegiate honor society, has bestowed an $8,500 fellowship on Kelsey Keith, a May 2021 MTSU graduate from Murfreesboro. She's one of only 62 PKP fellowship recipients nationwide. Keith will move to Oviedo, Spain as a Fulbright teaching assistant. In the fall of next year, Keith will begin her master's degree work in the University of Pennsylvania's Education, Culture, and Society program. Keith earned bachelor's degrees in both English and Spanish at MTSU. And those who want to learn about grape harvesting or just want some fresh grape juice should join MTSU's Tony Johnston and others for this year's Grape Harvest Day. The harvest takes place from 7 to 11 Saturday morning, August 28th at the Vineyard at the Lane Agri-Park, which is located at 315 John Rice Boulevard in Murfreesboro. Johnston, a professor in the MTSU School of Agriculture and director of the Fermentation Science Program, said participants should plan to park at the Livestock Barn building lot and ride the hay wagon to the Vineyard. Volunteers should bring pruners, gloves, a hat, sunscreen, drinking water, and a clean gallon jug to take juice home. Everyone who picks at least one lug or 20 pounds of fruit will be able to take a gallon of juice home. Johnston said the harvested grapes will be brought to the pavilion across from the farmer's market building for destemming, crushing, and pressing. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. Dr. Loveless, thank you for joining us. We appreciate you being on the program. Yeah, thank you for having me. What are some of the behaviors that people exhibit when they become disruptive in a medical setting? I think you have to consider uh, first all of the various influence of, influences of behavior uh, that occur in a medical setting, which could cause people to, uh, to act out. And of course, we're talking about a, a very high stress environment uh, people have very often very little control over what's kind of happening to them and little often little understanding of, of, of why it's happening to them. So uh, the behaviors that can result from that are, are anything that you can imagine from verbal aggression to, to even to, to physical aggression. These could be people who uh, uh, are just reacting to the stress. And on the other hand, they could be conceivably people who uh, had behavioral issues prior to entering uh, the institution for whatever reason. That's right. And it could also be people who are having uh, just a general uh, uh, an adverse reaction to care. You know, one of the main kind of presentations, if you will, that contributes to 
this is a is a neurological phenomenon known as delirium, where people are are uh, they develop confusion and they're not properly oriented to their environment, and um, that can have environmental antecedents like. Uh, you know, the disruptions in sleep that tend to come with hospitalizations and, you know, the various bells and whistles and lights that they kind of get exposed to that disrupt normal kind of circadian rhythms and the like. Uh, but they can also be a function of uh, the medical treatments themselves. So specific medications can cause delirium among certain uh, groups of people or people recovering surgery can experience delirium. Of course, if you're confused and not properly oriented, there is a you know, a, a higher risk that uh, you might behaviorally act out. What have been the traditional strategies for dealing with these disruptive situations? Well, as we kind of discussed in the paper, the traditional approaches kind of focus primarily on a, a, a model of secondary prevention or, or tertiary prevention. These are usually reactive strategies. So uh, a patient might be uh, escalating in their behavior the staff gets nervous or gets concerned, and then uh, they call for some sort of assistance. And there's different models as to how that's uh, typically been done. Uh, at the UVA Health Center, where we did this work, uh, they have a, a, a behavioral emergency response team, a BERT model. So if a given patient is acting in a way that's aggressive or difficult to manage such that the, the, the staff feel endangered, they'll call one of these uh, BERT calls and a team of people responds to de-escalate the situation and then to create a plan moving forward to keep that from happening. Again, that's very reactive. The other main strategy that's often employed uh, in terms of secondary prevention is kind of access to specialty consultation liaison services to intervene at identified cases where patients are already escalating and they're are giving signs that they might escalate in their behavior. For example, psychiatry consultation liaison services are often consulted to come in and provide medication management to maybe help someone feel more relaxed in their hospital stay. Uh, psychology consultation liaison services are often called to do the same thing, just not with medications, but instead with some form of um, behavioral intervention. And how is the alternative method that you and your colleagues tested at this hospital different from the traditional strategies? It's different in that we added a, a, a primary prevention uh, kind of mechanism uh, for, the, for the floor staff. So consider um, most of the patients whom or excuse me for a minute, uh, most of the, the uh, time a patient spends with uh, various providers and staff uh, on a given medical unit occur with nurses and CNAs and, and the kind of uh, people that provide the more moment-to-moment uh, -moment types of care. And so we thought if we were able to get that floor staff or, or engage with that floor staff and train them in very particular uh, behavioral strategies uh, to, um, I don't know, build more of a rapport, develop, develop more of a working relationship with their patients, then there's going to be less likelihood that these patients will then escalate. And so a lot of the attending behaviors, a lot of the, the de-escalation skills, the things that we might train a therapist in, 
we kind of gave these floor staff a, a, a crash course in, uh, and the idea is that if they're able to engage with patients on a moment-to-moment -moment or day-to-day -day basis, it's a little bit more collaborative and informed from the perspective of the patient, then uh, that's going to prevent a lot of potential behavioral disruption that might result if those things weren't in place. We have the, the secondary prevention. We have the CL services who are on call. We, of course, still have the BERT teams, but this model added that um, primary prevention component, that training for the staff on the front end to help them be more prepared with the kind of interpersonal management of these patients that are going to be at a higher risk for behavioral emergencies. So what was your methodology in testing the proactive alternative to dealing with behavioral emergencies? We picked two units on the hospital, uh, two high birth birding units, so units who historically had a, a high percentage of births, and uh, we selected one to be our intervention unit and then uh, the other to be a comparison unit. Our intervention unit, we gave them or we gave the staff essentially an hour-long training and behavioral de-escalation skills of various different types. And then we, we measured their comfort, their, a bunch of different things related to how comfortable they were uh, dealing with difficult patients or dealing with patients with psychiatric disorders uh, and various other kind of uh, things that we were interested in measure both before and after and then later uh, one month down the line and then three months down the line. Uh, these floor staff in this particular unit went through this, this one hour training. Uh, we, we, we collected our data uh, measuring their uh, um, their, their response to that training, and then monitored BERT calls from that particular unit as compared to our comparison unit. And what were the results? The results were that on our comparison unit, uh, they were around uh, almost five times more likely to have a BERT call during our follow-up um, monitoring period than our uh, intervention unit. And so uh, we saw a reduction in our intervention unit of number of BERT calls by about 50%, uh, which, is, which is kind of what we, were, uh, what we were hoping to see. And then when we looked at the, the data in terms of kind of staff comfort with responding to BERTs, kind of immediately post-training, people kind of felt that they understood what the BERT was for and what it wasn't for and how that process worked better than before the training. They reported having a greater uh, comfort with seeing psychiatric patients or patients rather with psychiatric comorbidities than before the training. And then they felt more prepared and more comfortable uh, kind of managing uh, uh, conflict and disruptions that a potential, you know, challenging patient might cause. We were limited in the types of statistics we could run with this data, but when we, when we tracked people in follow-up one month, three months, we saw that those gains uh, from, or at least these perceptions of gains from post-training kind of continued for the staff. It seemed to add this component, this, this primary prevention component to give people the skills uh, that they needed to feel comfortable managing uh, more challenging patients that really seemed to make a difference in terms of the number of emergencies that were called. We'll take a break here. We'll be back in just a moment. This is MTSU on the record. The mission of the June Anderson Center for Women and Non-Traditional Students is to provide education, advocacy, direct services, outreach, and programming for the MTSU campus and surrounding community on gender-related issues. The center also assists older students who are trying to balance work, college, and family. It also sponsors a monthly legal clinic, career brown bag series, book club, and a newsletter twice a year. 
For all of the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The Intercultural and Diversity Affairs Center helps to promote awareness and understanding of the wide variety of cultures represented at MTSU. The center provides information, referrals, and resources. Additionally, IDAC tries to make students from different cultures feel welcome and comfortable on campus so they can have every opportunity to fulfill their academic, social, and personal potential. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Our guest is Dr. James Loveless. He's an assistant professor of psychology, and he is co-author of a study titled An Innovative Model of Behavior Management to Address Behavioral Emergencies in the Acute Medical Inpatient Setting, Pilot Data. That is a fancy way of saying that he conducted research on a different way for healthcare professionals to approach psychological disruptions in a, in a medical setting. This was a good-sized hospital where you conducted your uh, research with a level one trauma center. Would this type of approach be equally adaptable to smaller hospitals with fewer staffers? Uh, therein lies, I think, the, the challenge and a potential kind of um, uh, area for, for uh, further development. Um, you know, obviously, you're, you're very correct in, in noticing that, um, you know, University of Virginia is obviously a, a, a very kind of um, well, well-resourced academic medical center. They've got a, a pretty robust, you know, Department of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences with a, with a strong psychiatry CL service. They've developed a psychology CL service to, to help facilitate this. And so this is best suited for a place, obviously, that would have a lot of, you know, a lot of resources. So I think that's the trick is to figure out, you know, kind of dose response. What pieces of this uh, could be pared down uh, to be more adaptable to uh, hospital settings that maybe aren't as well resourced as some of these larger academic medical centers? So there's a possibility that the uh, uh, proactive approach might have to be tailored to fit individual facilities, unique circumstances and needs, right? Sure. And, you know, again, often based in resources and the amount of um, time and, and money a given health system has to afford, say, a psychologist to come in and do this type of training or having a psychologist or psychiatrist or a team of uh, maybe a mixed team of those two on call to do the more kind of traditional secondary and tertiary prevention parts of this. Uh, and just, you know, to also be generally available to the medical staff on on consults. So yeah, there are going to be components of this that are uh, likely going to be more easily adaptable to some places than others. Some people might be thinking this is sort of like the, the old uh, Southern way of calling people sweetie or honey or making sure you that you know the nurse's name while the nurse is attending to you. But it's more than just ingratiating yourself as a healthcare professional with the, the patient, it's more involved in terms of the actual techniques employed, right? You know, the overarching goal with a given, with any any healthcare provider, whether you're inpatient or outpatient, uh, healthcare, good healthcare delivery uh, rests upon collaboration, a collaboration between the, the I guess, the, the, the technical expert, the healthcare provider, and the patient who's receiving the care, because it doesn't matter how good you are, how maybe good of a cardiologist you are, or how good of a, a psychiatrist you might be, 
if your patient isn't going to consent or assent to do the things you're asking them to do, you can't help them. And so, you know, the very specific tools we would teach these staff to bring to bear here are those same tools that build strong working relationships and psychology or, or psychology and, and professions like social work and, and counseling. We're, we're very familiar with these because we do a lot of, uh, we're trained uh, kind of at our core in these kind of relationship skills, but showing people unconditional positive regard, no matter who, who they are or what their circumstances are, demonstrating accurate empathy to individuals to, to, to show that you understand what they're going through and what their struggles are, you know, showing a, a, a degree of genuineness and how you interact with them, that you earnestly are there to help them. You know, you're not there to talk down to them or, or whatever else. And then you leverage that to help build good working relationships. You know, what's, what's somebody's, you know, goal for care in a hospital setting, it's to, to get better and to get out great, let's, let's build a, a working relationship around that goal. And then to do that, then here's what we're going to have to do. And uh, you, you give out a, your plan and you see what the patient's willing to do and not do and let them collaborate with you on that. And all of that kind of building of a strong collaborative relationship, it's important for all patients, but it's particularly important for these patients that are much higher risk for behavioral emergencies. What impact did the staff concern for anonymity have on the study? I, I understand that they wanted to keep their responses both prior to and after the study anonymous. Yeah, and that's fairly standard in, in, in a lot of different forms of research. And this is quality, this was a quality improvement study. And so I suppose some might have had a concern about a, a potential for maybe some hospital administrator to look at their you know, changes and opinions and things and be concerned about that. But most of this type of research is done in an anonymous fashion. And uh, we actually were unable to, uh, in our design, were unable to kind of match responses across time, which is really what limited our ability to look at uh, within subjects changes. So all of this data has remained anonymous and there's really no way to kind of link it back to um, the, the people who, who participate in it. You know, this was a, a quality improvement project and, and it didn't, as such, it doesn't go kind of, it, it wasn't meant to be a, a research artifact. You know, this idea was to improve patient care uh, in the hospital. I will say that because of that, you know, the kind of typical uh, procedures we would go through like IRB approval and that sort of thing, you know, we, we didn't do or we didn't have to do. Nevertheless, you know, everyone who participated in this on these units gave us their assent to, to, to be involved. I think people were strongly encouraged to be involved and they gave their assent, their assent to do so, which is typical of this type of, type of intervention when it's tested in the hospital setting. As you alluded to earlier, and the, the after the proactive uh, approach was implemented, the staff indicated that they felt better in terms of their confidence in their ability to handle situations that are disruptive. And yeah. as we all know, not only in high stress situations like a hospital, but in just about any job, uh, employee morale results in better outcomes for the people being served, right? Right. And that we see that consistently in healthcare. And, and it's, you know, healthcare is a tough gig, especially working in, in hospital settings. This is incredibly stressful for the patients, but it's incredibly high stress for, for the providers and, and nursing staff in general. One of our other future directions, not only to figure out how to make this 
training more, I don't know, usable by hospitals and organizations of all shapes and sizes is to also figure out uh, within that how to how to make it as efficient as possible and as accessible as possible. Because I think one of the one of the things that derailed is well, not derailed, but put on pause this this work that we're doing over at UVA is the pandemic. The pandemic hit real hard and, you know, they, they had a high attrition rate in their nursing staff and, and now they're reliant not so much on these kind of full-time nurses that they had before, but these kind of more temporary positions and traveling nurses and that sort of thing. So it really kind of underscores um, in, in nursing in general is a, is a healthcare profession that uh, is, is in a high demand. They, we need more nurses you know, trying to figure out how to make this, uh, this training efficient and accessible, even be included in the onboarding process. So when you hire a new nurse, they have to, you know, go through this type of training and maybe even like a, have a refresher every so often to make sure those skills stay fresh. Uh, but yeah, that's the challenge for us is to figure out how to, how to make this uh, as, as adaptable as, 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 and as flexible as it can be for um, the times in which we're we're, we're living through. Time for another break. We'll be right back. This is MTSU on the record. The MTSU Department of Art has the newest facility for visual arts in the state with approximately 50,000 square feet of space, including high-tech computers and computer-driven equipment for multimedia, graphic design, printmaking, sculpture, painting, and ceramics. We feature a visiting artist lecture program and an exhibition program that exposes students to work by national and international artists. To find out more, visit mtsunews.com. MTSU's Jewish and Holocaust Studies minor offers undergraduate students a chance to study the culture and religion of the Jewish people and the Holocaust in an interdisciplinary program. Studies include history and culture, theology and philosophy, and the arts and social sciences. Courses tackle vital topics central to local and global awareness, including multiculturalism and the meanings of diversity, religious tolerance, and genocide. For the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Dr. James Loveless is our guest. He's an assistant professor of psychology and co-author of a study that tested a proactive approach to dealing with uh, psychological disruptions in medical settings. You mentioned the possibility of a long-term study. Is it possible, given all things worked out, grant and resources and such, that a longitudinal study that could be done over a period of months or even years using this type of approach? Sure, that's, that's, that's highly possible. Uh, there's certainly a, a need for it, kind of as we we discussed in the paper. You know, this is a violence and disruption in the workplace is certainly a a, a big issue in healthcare and, and costs quite a bit of money annually to our you know very collective uh, healthcare system. So certainly, this would uh, this would be a type of intervention or type of project that uh, you know I'm I'm sure a lot of folks would be interested in in um, learning how it could be expanded and and be made more applicable to to more more health systems are there other areas uh, of research that uh, could use your study as a jumping off point for going in different but related directions? Highly possible. It seems to me that this type of approach could also be maybe beneficial for other types of professional workplace environments wherein high stress maybe contributes to instances of violence or disruptions in the workplace. 
my my colleague, my industrial organizational colleagues would would have a better feel for that than than I would. But certainly, this kind of basic model of having some sort of uh, way of uh, primary prevention to to reduce overall risk of some of, of, a, of an adverse event occurring and then having some sort of secondary and tertiary prevention mechanisms to to deal with stuff as it starts to occur yeah I think that's that's applicable that could be applicable in a lot of arenas what hopes do you have for the possible widespread implementation of the the proactive approach in medical facilities it might be premature at this point to even think about that without more study, but down the road, do you see it as possibly feasible? I think that's one of the reasons why my, my, my co-authors and I wrote this article. I mean, we wanted the people to see there was an interest in this type of approach and, and provide just a, a, a little bit of data on, on how well it, it could work. And so I, I certainly see this from a perspective of providing quality care to people and, and reducing disruption to uh, medical care for everybody or all the patients on a given unit or in a given hospital. I think this could be very applicable for those purposes and perhaps, you know, other other institutions or other providers at institutions would want to try to develop a model or develop a service or based on this model. We, we certainly think it's a value and could be a value. And I think one of the things we have to figure out or, or uh, ultimately is um, how much money does this save a given hospital system? Because unfortunately, I mean, we, we always strive uh, for, for good patient care, but it seems like a lot of decisions, at least on an administrative level, are often made based on kind of how cost effective something is for what you get for it. And so I think that work remains to be done. But intuitively, I would say that uh, if you have less disruption to your, to your medical care on a given unit, by reduced number of behavioral emergencies, then you know people are going to be able to be served more efficiently, and they'll be able to get healthier and get out of the hospital quicker, which allows for more patients to come in. So it, it seems like this type of model or this type of approach would would be in service of cost savings. But I think we have to we have to get some data on that. We have to we have to actually measure that. And with so many hospitals owned by corporations these days, they are going to want to crunch the numbers before they do anything new, right? They're, they're going to want to have projections and, and, and estimates of, uh, you know, kind of initial investment to how long it's going to take to get a return on the investment. And regardless of what one thinks of such a system in healthcare, that's just unfortunately, or at this point, that's just the way things are. The study was published in the Journal of Clinical Psychology in Medical Settings, co-authored by Dr. James Loveless, who is an assistant professor of psychology here at MTSU. Thank you, Dr. Loveless, for being our guest today on MTSU On the Record. Thank you. We'll be right back. Specialized training in forensic science prepares tomorrow's professionals through the Forensic Institute for Research and Education, or FIRE. The Forensic Anthropology Search and Recovery Team assists law enforcement with skeletal remains at crime scenes. Legendary forensic scientists provide lectures free to the public and high school students work realistic crime scenes each summer at our CSI MTSU camp. I'm Dr. Hugh Berryman, Director of FIRE. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. Expanding Your Horizons is an annual hands-on science and math conference for middle and high school girls. EYH enables girls to investigate careers in science and math and to talk with female leaders in those fields that are so essential to our nation's future. UIH also provides the girls with fun, hands-on activities and allows them to meet girls with similar interests. I'm Dr. Judith Iriarte-Gross, EYH Director. 
For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. Jimmy Hart has the middle moment. Amy Whittemore, Murfreesboro's Poet Laureate and a professor in MTSU's English department, discusses the Poetry in the Borough program. You can find details online at poetryintheborough.org. Poetry in the Borough is the brainchild of Corey Wells, the former laureate, and a few poet friends of hers. And she started in 2016, and I joined her as a co-organizer shortly thereafter. And we wanted to create something that would symbolize the community that Poetry in the Borough represents. We were able to create an arts calendar that featured poetry and photography from artists in the community. Uh, So we did that for 2021 and it was a great success and we are currently seeking submissions for our 2022 calendar. That's MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU on the Record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University, is produced by the university's Marketing and Communications Office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.